0: Welcome to More Like This, a podcast from Netflix Q, the journal that celebrates the people, ideas, and process of creating great entertainment. I'm Krista Smith. I've spent over 20 years interviewing some of the biggest names in Hollywood, and on this show, I'm bringing you fresh new perspectives from across the entertainment industry, with the kind of access only Netflix can offer. But I won't be doing it alone. I get to collaborate with some of the best writers, interviewers, and experts in the business. My co-host this week is award-winning journalist and self-proclaimed world changer, Travell Anderson. Welcome to our show, Travell. Hey, Krista. Thanks for having me. Oh, I am so happy uh, to talk to you. You're one of my all-time favorite peeps out there in the world. Thank you. What I want to know is what did you watch over the holiday?
1: Okay, so I did a little bit of highbrow and a lot of lowbrow, I have to admit, okay? So I'm that person that was, like, waiting for the Great British Bake Off finale to come out. I was waiting patiently, so I watched that. I revisited American Barbecue Showdown um, because it just was such a good show. I binged it, you know, earlier in the quarantine. Um and then holiday related, I guess, you know, I watched the the Debbie Allen um Dance Academy documentary that came out Jingle Jangle was a real good time for me. Um I've seen that like 3 times now or something like that. So, you know, I have just been cycling through, you know, good, light, easy things.
0: Mm. I did pretty much the same. I mean, you're talking about the uh, Chocolate Nutcracker, right, with with Debbie yes. Allen. I love that. I watched that as well. And what I was so surprised is that those the dancers, they do it year after year after year after year. It's this real community uh, around that. I love that doc. I did Christmas Chronicles because I love Kurt Russell, little fun fact, uh, <laughs> and also Goldie Hawn. So I watched that. I did Jingle Jangle as well. I got real into the spirit. I also put up my Christmas tree.
1: Oh, wow. I got busy. Oh, wow. You're in it already.
0: I also watched this short, If Anything Happens, I Love You. And Mm. it is a 12-minute film, and it is so moving. There's no dialogue, but the score and the story, and I'm just really was really in awe of that film and I don't want to give it away but it is it is about loss and and gun violence but it's done in such a unique refreshing way and the other question because of our program today I want to talk about classic cinema. Mm-hmm. So this is my happy place really i love I love this area. <laughs> fantasy of the the 40s and the shoulder pads and film noir (laughs) and Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart and all that stuff. But do you have a favorite uh, classic kind of golden era of Hollywood film?
1: So, I have kind of a, I don't want to call it a love-hate relationship with, you know, the golden era. But, like, you know, I'm all about, like, Black films, Black representation and stuff like that. You know, back in the day, we had some issues. Let's just put it that way. Um, But if I'm going to choose any film from that time period, I mean, I think I'm going to go with... Um, Stormy Weather, the Stormy mm-hmm. Weather count, early 40s, Lena Horn, mm-hmm. Mr. Bojangles, Cab Calloway. I just, I love the love story in that film and I feel like That's one of those films that's like the precursor to Love Jones, which, you know, a lot of us talk about these days in terms of black love on screen. So I would go with Stormy Weather.
0: That's an excellent choice. Thank you. Okay, let's talk about Citizen Kane. Mm -hmm. I mean, it feels like one of those movies that is a must watch if you're interested in cinema, in Hollywood, in media. It's got everything. It's Literally, I think, one of the greatest movies of all time. And that brings us to Mank. So Mank is David Fincher's new film about the infamous screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz, a.k.a. Mank, who co-wrote Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. And what makes this really interesting to me is that David Fincher directed the movie from a screenplay written by his father, Jack Fincher. So Gary Oldman stars as Mank, Tom Burke as Orson Welles, and Charles Dance plays William Randolph Hearst. The character that brings them all together is Hearst's mistress, Marion Davies, and that role is played by Amanda Seyfried.
2: I need a favor, but you're going to have to promise you won't laugh. Given the state of the world, a
3: tall order. You're
2: going to. I just know you are.
3: I have got such a hangover right now. There's just a fighting chance I won't.
2: I'm being burned at the stake, and I am dying for a (laughs) (laughs) ciggy-boo. There. God's punishing you. Watch those stairs. They're treacherous. Every moment of my life is treacherous. Well, as they say in the Bronx, make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you her No, please call me Mac.
1: You know, we stand Amanda in this household over here, um, mainly because of, you know, her contribution to mean girls those many years ago but i feel like she's also like shown us such such great ability and talent and range over the years in terms of like the different types of roles that she's taking on
0: mm-hmm. this for her is such a career moment we've seen her range from mean girl to lovelace to les Rob, but mank she scales new heights and you're going to love this, Trevelle, because she lives on a farm upstate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the antith- that sounds so perfect. Right?
0: The antithesis of glamour and Hollywood and New York or L.A., any of it. So sit back, enjoy. Here is Amanda Seyfried. I am very excited to talk to you about Mink uh, from the first second I saw it and I've seen it twice now and I want to see it a third time and having the privilege of knowing your career from the very beginning I feel like from my time at Vanity Fair and watching you grow I feel like this is the part that you were meant to play and you were a revelation in this movie it was just like oh I was, I'm just so proud of you. So I'm going to start with that. Thank, thank you. <laughs> I think what makes this film so strong is the relationship between Marion and Mank. And Mank, of course, is played by Gary Oldman. Uh, and your chemistry is just incredible. You don't, as an audience member, you don't not believe it for one second. You feel like you're right there with them.
2: Their relationship was written in a way that I think captured the best of both of them the best of mank in that he was really truly so easy to be around and just wanted to have fun and was so smart and could s- spin things and, and make things so much more interesting and is the same she's really clever and she's very charismatic and really she just wants to have fun and she just wants to see the best in people and so you get the best of each of these people who they were and you see it you see them just mix so beautifully in the the script and you want to believe that that's how their, their relationship was. And I think because Gary is not very precious when he's on set, if he, he's, he doesn't take himself that seriously. He shows up, he knows, he knows exactly what he's doing in terms of like, he, he's very prepared, but he also can play around and nothing can be too serious. And that's the way I work. I am not very precious either. If I make a mistake you know, I I don't get into my head. We just we just really work together that way really well. And I think that you can feel that. You can feel this um the connection that we have on set and, and how much we love our characters and how prepared we are and how we like to play around and the connection between Mank and Mary and there it's all really kind of fused together.
0: Other than the script, uh, and I imagine your conversations with David Fincher, how Did you, Amanda, get into Marion? Like, what was your, you know, did you do research? Like, what what did you start with and kind of what did you end with?
2: Boy, well, I started with terror inside of me because she's a real person and she's Marion Davies. She's this glamorous movie star in the Golden Age. Someone my dad admired, you know, he's just such a cinephile. So I just, there was a lot to live up to. So I knew I just needed to get as much information as possible, which was not that easy surprisingly she wasn't that well respected when she was alive which was interesting because she's an incredible actor I think she's an, an incredible comedian and that's what she loved to do and you could she thrived in that way she's done so many movies but she is a mystery really I mean her autobiography is memories and we don't know how clear she was at that point when she was being interviewed it's always a trip and I was lucky I had enough information but but then at the end of the day we were also creating her based on an essence that I have and that she has and that really was helped by just long conversations with David well i want to talk about some of
0: your projects because you had such you've had a lot of diversity, intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, From Mamma Mia, obviously, we talked a little bit about Les Mis, singing in both of those, and singing with Meryl Streep, I'm just going to say, and dancing around in overalls and all that uh, jazz. (laughs) Uh, For you, were those conscious choices, or is that just like you said earlier, one thing kind of came after another, and it was just a matter of saying yes to things as they came along?
2: Yes the diversity of roles, very intentional. It's tricky just to be specific. It was really tricky to go forth with Lovelace and Chloe because of the content. But my, but I did those movies for a lot of reasons, but, but the, the, the other reasons were because I needed to break out of whatever people thought, especially the industry. To be seen in the industry as, as to be respected in the industry is of course really important. I've always wanted that. I've always wanted people to trust that I could I could perform, that I could bring it, that I could play different roles. So the diversity in that respect, like you that's kind of like being tested. you know I'm, I want to pass the test in my own for my own peace of mind and also to show people that I can I'm an actor, I can play different roles. But Chloe and Lovelace were, you know, they could have been really tricky if I didn't nail it or if I didn't, if I couldn't get it right or if the movie turned out really bad or for any sort, any number of reasons. But I also was like, look, these are pretty serious roles. I'm not playing the dumb blonde. (laughs) And then, of course, I'd have to fight for a lot of roles. And that had nothing to do with keeping my career diverse. It was just, I need to play Cosette in this movie. Do you like the but play?
0: Do you like when you audition? And
2: I love when someone's like, I don't think you're right for it. And then I can reply, I'm I'm right for it. You will see. And of course, I don't know how many times I auditioned for Moons. I was told no before I even auditioned. And I was like, You're gonna I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna make you wanna choose me by the end of this. And it worked perseverance. It really worked. I love auditioning. I'm like, I'm the actor that will, that will read, you know, there's just so many actors that I forget what the it's called when agents are like, Oh, offer only. I'm not an offer only for the most part. Mm. Because I like to fight. I love reading. I love, I love the competition.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you fight for Marion?
2: I, I didn't actually. I hate, I feel silly saying that <laughs> it feels like I'm bragging in some way, I am shocked that I did not have to fight. I would have fought, and ho- and won actually. I, I would have fought and won because I would have worked my ass off. But I didn't have to.
0: It's the part you were meant to play. They knew that.
2: I hope so. I they... think I like to think that David trusted that I could.
0: I I could embody her in the way he wanted. All of it was so great.
2: You're afforded so much time and space. When Fincher is doing a movie, everybody behind him, in terms of finances, seem It seems to me like they trust so much what he's doing, so much of what he's doing, and it seems like there's a lot. There's the luxury of time and space, and you get the best costumes and the best props and the best production design, and everything is just to the nines. That like you have all the time in the world to shoot these scenes you just kind of melt into into that world you know you you think a scene on my last movie one scene would take half a day and this would take an entire week and so I lived with those props and with those costumes much longer than I do with any other character it's so I don't I don't miss any of it actually like I I really got to live in it I really got to like milk it (laughs) I've done a lot of cool things in my life I've played a lot of cool characters and I've worked with amazing people but but this is on another level this is something that's going to live on for for everybody everybody involved and for everybody that sees it Mm -hmm. because it's one of a kind
0: it is one of a kind it's so timely the script and all of it is brilliant and I'm so happy for you too. Thanks. Thank you so much, Amanda. I love catching up with you. And
2: it's good to see you. I really appreciate this though. I'm so happy you want to see it again. I
0: absolutely want to see it again. And you see different things in the film and you respond to different things. And it's it's fantastic. So I appreciate your time and congratulations on the new addition to your family. <laughs> Thank you. To read more on Amanda, go to NetflixQ.com. That's NetflixQ, Q-U-E-U-E.com. And to listen to the full interview, please go to Present Company, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Oh, so
1: good. Yes. I love, I have to ask you, because I know you've been in this industry, you know, you're a veteran at this thing. When did was the first time you met, spoke to Amanda?
0: You know, I first... I think like you, I feel like I first noticed her in Mean Girls and was like, Mm -hmm. wow, who is that? But one of my very my first impression of her was when we were shooting uh, one of those Hollywood covers where there's, you know, three panels and it's this giant day and Annie Leibowitz is shooting and there's schedules and like all this stuff to put together. It's like producing a a film. Hmm. And she was on that cover and she was so sick. She had the flu, but she wasn't going to miss that uh, cover, right? Because it's, wow. it's one and done. And I was so impressed by the fact that she was throwing up and then would sit up and take the picture. And she was looking gorgeous, (laughs) looking gorgeous. First of all, it was like flawless. You would never know she was sick, but she was really sick. And just that kind of recognizing that this is a moment I'm not going to get again, and I'm going to make sure that I'm here. And instead of making it all about herself and I'm sick, and it was all about like, don't pay attention, nothing to see here. I'm fine. (laughs) Take the picture. Okay, now, Travell. Yes. I'm gonna, I might be making you uncomfortable for a second, but now's the time in the show that we're going to celebrate you for a second. All right. Or for a little <laughs> bit more. This year, you were named one of the Root's hundred most influential African-Americans. And as president of the Los Angeles National Association of Black Journalists, you were recently credited with pushing the organization to condemn any and all instances of homophobia and transphobia in the community. You've been on the forefront of Black, queer, and trans visibility and have been recognized for such. So I want to ask you, what hopes do you have for the immediate future and beyond?
1: I think for me, my hope is that as we see more and more queer and trans folks get opportunities in Hollywood to be part of the telling of our own stories, that some of that... Energy, some of that attention spills into trans people in their everyday lives, right? Um, Because we are very much so experiencing a landmark moment in terms of trans visibility um, right now. And unfortunately, at the same time, 2020 is the deadliest year on record for trans people, um, the majority of them being Black trans women, right? I am interested in how we can take our media and connect it to the very real lived experiences of trans folks so that we're not only celebrating trans people on screen, but we're also celebrating them, you know, in our everyday lives, in our local communities as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, I just think it's so important to, to come to know and to understand and to experience Lives that are different from our own.
1: And I was just going to say that I think that that's also like one of the beauties of, you know, this film that we're about to get to discuss, Disclosure, Trans Lives on Screen, um, this documentary by Sam Thetter that really, the way I describe it is it it teaches us and shows us the ways in which media has taught us to hate trans people, both mm. cisgender people as well as trans people to hate ourselves. Um, starting with the earliest moving images from D.W. Griffiths through that golden classic Hollywood period that we discussed before all the way to pose and the different shows that we see now. Right. Um, and it's done so beautifully by trans folks for trans folks, but also for non-trans folks. Um, and I had the recent opportunity to sit down with Laverne Cox, who I mentioned before, who most people will probably know for, um, orange is the new black, um, as well as Angelica Ross, um, who kind of shot to fame through Pose, both are kind of featured voices in Disclosure. Laverne Cox is an executive producer, so I'm really excited for you all to get a chance to hear a little bit of that conversation. Here it is with Laverne Cox and Angelica Ross. How are you doing, Laverne?
4: I'm, I'm here, you know? <laughs> and
5: we are thankful for that. Okay. We also have with us Angelica Ross. I'm still feeling interestingly optimistic, so I'm here. We're good.
1: We love optimistic. Well, we're here to discuss Disclosure. Laverne, could you, as an executive producer, could you give us a little bit of background information in terms of how you got involved with the project? Tell us a little bit about Sam, um, the director, and his vision for Disclosure.
4: The really interesting thing, and I hadn't really thought about it until now, is that Angelica is the reason I became involved in disclosure. And it's because um three years ago I was I was living here in LA and I was missing community and I went online and I saw that you and Jen Richards were speaking at uh, a panel, and I just got into a lift to get there. And and I went because of you and Sam. Bader happened to be giving a presentation of the research that would become disclosure um, that day. And so um, I just really thought, I thought like if I if you weren't speaking at that panel that day, I wouldn't have um, gone to that panel and met Sam. And I um, met Sam, talked to him after the discussion. We met a week later and I said, again, how can I be of service? I always wanted to do Something that what I, in my mind I um, called the transgender celluloid closet. Celluloid closet, for those who don't know, is a film that is based on the book by Vito Russo that looked at the history of um, gay and lesbian representation in Hollywood. And I, I, was for years, I was like, we need something like that for trans people. And I just um, had a conversation with my manager about the next thing I wanted to do, and I wanted it to be centered around trans history. And I apparently spoke it into existence and met Sam and uh, three years later, here we are.
1: I love that. And Angelica, you know, I want to know from you when you first got reached out to, to be part of the film, what was your initial reaction, your initial thought about the idea of of this film that chronicles trans history on screen?
5: I mean, I just, I knew from the beginning it definitely was going to be something for me that uh, felt like a final... Finally, a, a catalog, a real, a true telling of sort of the history that's so often whitewashed uh, around our participation in all this. And and again, it was a, another situation where I realizing that, you know, Laverne was going to be a part of it, where just realizing, OK, we've got one of us on the team, you know what I mean, on the inside. So it was great. And when my sister called me, she was like, Angelica, we really need your story. We need, we need your point of view. We need, you know, your lens on this. Will you be a part of it? yes, girl, yes, girl, you know how we do. <laughs> now, Laverne,
1: um, you know, I've told you this already, um, but for those who don't know, you have a, a great long knowledge of trans history, trans representation. Um, I want to start by talking to you about like, what what moments from your memory, your recollection of trans history were very important for you to have included in the film um, as a discussion fo- uh, discussion piece for what people would, would take away? There's so there's so many things. So my first memories of
4: seeing um, what I thought was a trans character on screen, which was um, Edie Stokes uh, from the Jeffersons. Um, it was also the relationship between um, drag and, and trans, because I my mother was a huge fan of the Flip Wilson show, and so that Geraldine character, even though that was not a trans character, that Geraldine character, and I believe, um, the history of sort of comedians, particularly African-American comedians, dressing in drag affected the ways in which people responded to me and my gender nonconformity when I was a kid and later when I um, transitioned. I knew I needed to, we needed to unpack that the impact of those representations on the lives of trans people on my life trans life as a trans person specifically. I was also really interested in, um, in Christine Jorgensen and the way her story was framed um, in that New daily news article from um i think it was december 1st 1952 the headline read xgi becomes blonde jane and the way in which that that headline and then the way her story was framed is someone who was a soldier something that was associated with something very masculine becoming this blonde Jane, this, this sort of binary was set up around how we talked about trans folks and that binary kind of persisted for the next 60 years in terms of how we talked with and about trans people. So I knew that needed to be explored as well. So those are a few of the things.
2: Just a few.
1: <laughs> Angelica, you smiled when she, when she said uh, the Jeffersons, Edie Stokes and the Jeffersons. What's your connection to trans imagery prior to this particular moment?
5: I really did gravitate towards these same characters that seemed to be these strong you know, women who weren't necessarily trans, but the ways in which they were being sent or put in the story was not the ingenue. It was, ne- you know, was never that sort of situation. So it was very interesting. Um, so I'm gonna still unpack that. One thing we couldn't also find, I don't think in the archives, was the fact that I had appeared on the Maury Povich show uh, twice. And so the reality was is that for the depiction, I remember growing up in my family household and, you know, Jerry Springer and things like these coming on. And my mom being like, my, no, none of my kids been not turn out like that. Or, you know, this kind of thing of just us hearing this in earshot. And then come, you know, years later, my house mother, you know, at the time, you know, is encouraging me to take the call to go to Maury Povich because she says, she's like, I mean, I know this ain't the best thing, but girl, You're sickening. Because what we know is that when we watch those shows, Maury Povich, is it a he or she, when we watch those shows, the ones who were the most sickening caught people's attention. And so for us in the trans community, it was like the casting call of all casting calls. If you are that bitch, then you go and storm the area and somebody might see you. Maybe somebody might eventually cast you on something or what have you. That was our to hope for. So what's so unfortunate within our trans community is that so many people then got into a state where they thought that that's what made them special. Mm. It was like, now we're, we're, that's our gender identity. You know what I mean? That's just one aspect of who we are, but folks try to sell it to the mainstream media. Like, look, I'm a trans person. I got a story. I'm a trans person. I'm a trans person. And because we were taught by, allowing the media to do an exploitation into our lives, that was one of the ways we could be discovered. And now I'm so grateful that we have other avenues. Oh,
4: Angelica, that is so deep. And so I'm so glad you mentioned that.
5: Well, let me tell you, the fact that we were there made a huge difference in a way that I did not i did not expect. But when I saw Erica Andrews as the makeup artist on the Maury Povich show, We kind of, all the girls came together and they rallied behind me as I spoke to the main producers and said, we have to change something. And Mm -hmm. so we were like, we're tired of being called men, we're tired of this happening and blah, blah, blah. And we actually took this to them. From that point on, they started saying with their signs to reveal, she was born a boy. Even that was, you know, so that little change in language happened because we were on, because we went and we spoke up.
4: Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, Angelica.
1: I want to use this as an opportunity to talk about the production model of uh, Disclosure. Laverne, could you give us a little bit of information about um, how you all put together the team that, that gave us Disclosure and the importance of that intention?
4: What we are all so proud of with Disclosure is that we were committed to making sure that everyone, um, not only who's on screen in Disclosure is is trans, um, but everyone who works behind the scenes is also trans. And when we could not find someone trans to fill a role, Sam Fader, our, our brilliant director, had an idea of creating a fellowship program where the, that cisgender person would train a trans person in, in a job, in, in whatever job we couldn't um, with a trans person and what was so beautiful about that was that every most everyone on on this on this on the crew was trans and that created an environment that was so uplifting so incredible everyone was invested in the material and in the subject matter in a a
1: really really special way both of you are are producing other work I'm wondering um if if what what happened with Disclosure and the way that people are responding to Disclosure, as well as to the increased opportunities that we see so many of the other members of our community having um, has changed how you approach the work that you're doing, um, or at least the conversations that you've been having with potential collaborators. I'll start with Angelica.
5: Yes, um, for me, Disclosure was just further proof that um, trans people being in charge of trans narratives is a good idea. And that not only is a good idea, but it it really is an opportunity to teach people how to love and and support us as a community. My dream of all dreams is to, you know, if Tyler Perry is listening out there, I, I moved to, I live in Atlanta, Georgia. My dream of all dreams is hearing his objective of using his lot to help with homeless LGBTQ youth and with women who experience domestic violence, my thing is, okay, great. Now that we got them housed, let's put them to work. We don't even have to do, you know, the content. You don't have to because they're new and all this thing. But I want to create that level that lets them get in and roll up their sleeves and learn things while they're on the lot.
1: What about for you, Laverne, and how conversations have maybe changed um, for you as you're producing other work? I definitely
4: encourage, invite potential collaborators to watch Disclosure as a starting-off point, right? So I, what I feel is possible now, post-Disclosure, is for us to really have more sophisticated um, narratives around trans people and that the the possibilities we can move forward now that we've really c- clearly, you know, in a very in a very beautiful way um, said this is what it's been, this is what the problems are. They, I found over the years collaborating with um, some cis folks who've written trans narratives with the very best of intentions, and they want to tell these stories and they have no idea why they're problematic. Post-disclosure, the, we have to elevate the conversation. I...
5: Honestly, think that we're just at a point right now where we're so used to the same white people telling the same stories and the same telling it from the same direction that what we're seeing with disclosure is we can actually get through to people. If if the lion is finally telling the stories and you know instead of the hunter, then maybe we're not shooting and hunting lions.
1: As we wrap up, I would love if both of you just kind of like gave a message to our siblings out there in the community, something that you um, would like them to, to remember. Um, I'll start with Angelica.
5: I will share a message that I share with, with my Black community that is just as much true with Black and Brown trans people. Um, and it's equally as true with across the spectrum of LGBTQ plus folks. But when I think about that there is no place where blackness does not exist, we are everywhere. And so I think the very same thing about trans people is just know that not only should we as trans people know that we exist everywhere, but social society, because they think that we are relegated to the margins. When I could be on the boat at that party, I could be at the uh, restaurant waiting your table, I could be the doctor giving you your diagnosis. So we just have to know that trans people exist at all levels of society and we deserve to exist. Amen. Amen. I would I would say to my to
4: my siblings that worthiness has no prerequisite. There've been so many moments in my life where i was, where I've said to myself, I'll be worthy after this um, surgery, or I'll be worthy after this landmark in my transition. I'll be worthy after this. But worthiness has no prerequisites. Worthiness is a birthright. You are worthy right now. No matter what stage of transition you're in, no matter where you are in your life, you're worthy to be here. You're worthy of love and you are lovable.
1: I love it. Well, thank you both for joining us for this conversation. We truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. To read my full interview with Laverne and Angelica, go to NetflixQ.com. Every time I get a chance to sit down with those two lovely ladies, I feel like I'm always learning something from them.
0: You know what I always thought was so amazing about that doc is the that they wanted trans people behind the camera, and they were going to mentor people that don't have access, because it's so important. We want want all this visibility, certainly on screen. But to me, it's just as important behind the screen where you're not seen. But how do you create that pipeline? How do you get people involved? And how do you get marginalized communities and where there's no access to it. I just love that about what they did on Disclosure. Did you learn anything by talking to Angelica and Laverne that surprised you? I mean, I think for me,
1: I was really interested in the ways that they look back on, you know, that time period where there was the Jerry Springer show and the Maury Povich show. And they would do all these different things of like trying to get the audience to decide, you know, who was trans and who was not. Um, And I did not know, as Angelica says in the interview, that she participated in some of those, you know, I guess competitions, if you will, um, that The Maury Show did, Um, and the way she talks about how, while yes, it was exploitive, um, it was also you know, seen as an opportunity by trans folks to potentially, you know, get something else, right? To potentially be seen by the masses and, you know, the ways in which we as marginalized communities, whether you're a woman or LGBTQ or Black or brown, the ways we kind of make a way out of no way, right? The ways we take things that are that are negative in some way, shape, or form, but like try to spit it on its head as a means of, opportunity for ourselves, Um, I was really just kind of captured by um, both Laverne and Angelica's perspective on that. And I hope that this film, right, gets us as an industry to think differently um, about celebrity, about responsibility, about visibility, um, both specifically in the context of trans imagery, but also when we're thinking of other communities as well.
0: Disclosure looks back at the histories of cinema and society while being firmly grounded in the here and now. Our next interview does that as well. I talked to writer and film critic Chris Nashawadi about his fascinating essay for Q about the year 1968. Both Spike Lee's Five Bloods and Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7 takes us back to 1968. You had societal turbulence, you had civil unrest, you had political unease. But you watch these movies, and there's something completely contemporary about them. We discuss it all, and even how filmmakers of the future might look back on 2020. Well, Chris... Nashiwati, thank you for joining more like this. It's great to have you on. Uh, You wrote an excellent essay for Netflix Q about the importance of 1968, not only politically, but cinematically in relation to 2020. But I want to ask you a couple questions about you. What made you fall in love with movies?
3: i just always been into them. My parents um, would just park my brother and I in the movie theaters when they wanted to go shopping at the mall and uh, so we just saw everything and they were really, really liberal about um, movie ratings, so at like really inappropriate ages we saw R-rated movies and I just fell in love with movies and um, wasn't sure that I would, you know, have a career writing about movies um, but When I finally did, I had seen so many movies that I found myself like I had done a lot of the legwork. I didn't go to film school, but I sort of feel like I've been in film school my whole life.
0: What was the first R-rated movie that you remember seeing or one that you were able to acknowledge that this maybe wasn't appropriate?
3: (laughs) Um, Probably Dog Day Afternoon when I was like six um, You know, it was just not the right movie to bring a six-year-old to. Uh, but, you know, they just had a lot of faith in in my brother and I that we would be able to figure out between the salty language and the violence that, you know, this was just a movie. And um, so from that point on, it was, you know, they went into Jaws. We went to Jaws. We saw... Horror movies at a at the wrong age, I mean I saw Halloween in the theater when I was ten um It, it just they were really uh, if today they would be shamed for the kind of parenting they did,
0: <laughs> but back then it felt like anything goes well let's talk about uh the essay that you wrote for Netflix Q?
3: The two movies I wrote about were, you know, two of the best movies I've seen this year, and that was Spike Lee's Defy Bloods and um, Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of Chicago 7. Um, so I think both politically and racially and these taking the streets protests that have been going on um, for the past few years uh, are really draw stark parallels between um, 68 and 2020 and it's obviously not just pure coincidence that those two movies are being made and released right now um, they are about 68 but they're also about right now uh, and and that's what filmmakers do you know they 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 take um, they can take subjects that may seem like, you know, yellowing ancient history. uh, But they really speak to us now as allegories. And I think these two movies do that brilliantly. Mm.
0: What struck you most about the five bloods and, and, you know, Spike's interpretation of that, his take on it.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there was obviously a wave of Vietnam pictures that came out in the seventies, like the deer hunter and coming home and apocalypse now. Um, and those really told the war through the perspective of white soldiers. But when you actually look at at Vietnam and who was doing the fighting, it was disproportionately relative to population um, demographics, African-American soldiers. And that story hasn't been told. It's been told, but it hasn't been told enough. It feels like we're seeing a war that seems very familiar, but through a different set of eyes. And, and that makes it Feel fresh, and and the performances really are. You know, it's really um, a movie about about race, about you know inequality, um, about the awakening of sort of black power, and even the whole opening montage of the film where Spike goes through a lot of the most momentous news events and, and and political leaders of the '60s, and shows us before we've even seen a moment of the film. Just how loaded this period is in terms of what was going on in the country, and just how how turbulent it was. Um, so I really, I really thought that it was really beautifully made.
0: Mm-hmm. I I completely agree. I think of what Aaron Sorkin did with Chicago Seven. It was the same thing with with then Walter Cronkite's taking that actual footage and showing you what was happening in the newspapers and in those in those newsreels is so informative and it drops you right into the moment. And I know that a lot of young people that watched Trial of the Chicago 7 that didn't really know about it because it is one of those mythical things.
3: And how long that trial went on and and really the, the, the sort of the moment that's, the most horrifying in the, uh, in the whole movie is what they do to Bobby seal, who shouldn't even be in that courtroom in the first place. I mean, he's sort of added on to the, to these seven defendants because he's supposed to be scary to, to the jury um, because he's a black Panther. And, you know, he obviously is being railroaded in, in the, in the trial. And when he stands up for himself, you know, they, they eventually shackle him to the chair and, basically bind and gag him and it's like it makes you sort of queasy watching it because the the symbolism of slavery is just so overwhelming um so i i thought that that was really handled well in the movie too Mm -hmm.
0: well let's talk about what was going on in cinema at that time so in 2020 we're watching defy bloods and aaron sorkin's trial of chicago seven what were audiences watching back in 1968?
3: Well, I mean, it's funny because this is really the late 60s were a real um, seismic turning point in Hollywood. You know, the old studios uh, for a long time had been churning out a lot of re- really middlebrow movies, like you know, The Sound of Music and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and 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 you know, old fashioned musicals and period pictures. But in 67 which are the movies that would be celebrated at the Oscars in 68, you finally have the first wave of what would become known as the New Hollywood. These are all movies that tackled either what was going on racially or politically in the country, not overtly, but like it, you know, in a very sort of metaphorical way in some cases. So you've got movies like The Graduate. Um, You've got movies like Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, You've got movies like In the Heat of the Night, which ended up winning Best Picture.
0: Right, It also kind of created a a huge movie star in Sidney Poitier.
3: Yeah, I mean, Sidney Poitier was probably the only actor who could have pulled that off at the time, um, because by 1967 and 68, he was Hollywood's, not only Hollywood's most famous black leading man, he was the most acceptable to white audiences. Do you know what I mean? He actually physically strikes a white man, and you're supposed to cheer for him. You know, there's very few actors who could have pulled that off and made white audiences not walk out of the theater, but actually sort of empathize with that character. Mm
0: -hmm. And go on to win an Oscar. Okay, so it's 2020. What kind of movies are we going to be seeing (laughs) And.
3: <laughs> and, uh, are we gonna be seeing movies? Yeah.
0: <laughs> what are we gonna be seeing in, in uh twenty forty or even twenty thirty or twenty fifty? I mean what what do you think the artists right now are going to be reflecting back to us in in 20 years?
3: Well, I think, you know, I I don't think it's anyone who's watching this knows the sort of times that we're living through. They're crazy. And, you know, between the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement and the election that we've just gone through and are still kind of going through, um, you know, this has been a crazy, crazy year. And I have no doubt that um, the next time that society, American society grapples with issues of race, um, political corruption, um, any sort of hot button political issues, they're going to look back to right now. And they're going to use this moment as a springboard to convey whatever it is they want to convey um, through the world we're living through right now. So I, I assume that that we haven't seen the last of 2020, even as we we move on from it. It's going to be with us for a while.
0: Well, it's great talking to you, Chris. And uh, for anybody that wants to read more about the parallels between 1968 and 2020, please go to Netflix Q. That's Q-U-E, U-E. And for more on the Chicago 7, there is the official Chicago 7 podcast series. Thanks so much. It was great talking to you, Chris.
3: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: That was so interesting. You know, there's so many things I didn't think about 1968 and and how the parallels just line up to 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I forgot about In the Heat of the Night. And it was so interesting that that movie was the one that won the Oscar with all those mm-hmm. others, you know, compared to Dr. Doolittle and Bonnie and Clyde, that it was that film that so specifically dealt with race. And in the South, uh, and of course, it was Sydney Portier, yeah. who who really brought that film home. Um, do you have a favorite uh, Sydney movie?
1: Shout out to Lorraine Hansberry. I'm going to go with A Raisin in the Sun, um, the film. Mm. Um, I think that was, like, early 60s or something like that. And he played the lead, um, which is a role that, like, I guess, like, other people have done. I think Danny Glover did it. Denzel Washington did it at a point. Diddy. I'm going to go with A Raisin in the Sun, again, for how kind of specific it was about kind of the Black experience during that time period.
0: Mm. Excellent film. You know, we're here to share these stories that otherwise would never be told, all of us. And I think about it from you to me to Mank to Disclosure to Krishna piece. It all comes back to the same thing. Moving forward while we'll reflecting on what came before.
1: You know, it, it reminds me of something my granny used to say. Um, She was a a South Carolina pastor, okay? And she used to just say, you can't know where you're going until you know from whence you came. I love that. Mm,
0: So true. Um, I kind of want to know more about your granny, but we'll save that for another episode, (laughs) okay? (laughs) All right, well, we're nearing the end of the show, which makes me so sad, but it also means it's time for, for what it's worth. At the end of all my conversations... I always ask whoever I'm interviewing what advice they have. And this week, we're going to share our favorite gem from Amanda Seyfried.
2: I don't think there are any failures. And it's, it's not easy not to look at rejection or, or a, a challenge that feels impossible. It's not easy not to look at that as a failure. But I do believe every single thing that happens to you is, is just a, a rung on the ladder. Everybody has a different way of getting there. You can't ever mirror your path to someone else's. Everything is unique. And, and just because you're experiencing failure or what you think is failure right now does not have a say in how, how you succeed.
1: You know, the, the idea of, like, redefining failure. I'm actually going to, I'm going to quote my granny again for you. Um, and she used to say, a setback ain't nothing but preparation for your come up, right? As a way of, of just, like, not getting down on yourself when something doesn't go your way or you mess up when you make a mistake. But, like, realize that it's all in service of some some positive, some benefit that you will reap later on.
0: I got to remind myself of that every day. Yes. Uh, Well, Travell, thank you so much for being on the show. And thanks for having me. It's it's so it's just so great to talk with you. And I can't wait until you come back. Uh, But in the meantime, can you let people know where to find you and and anything else that you've got going on that I don't know about that I want to know about? (laughs) <laughs>
1: sure um, So I'm on the social medias At Travel Anderson My name on Twitter At Rayjean R-A-Y-Z-H-O-N On Instagram That's my middle name For those who are wondering um, And then you know If you like the good good That you're hearing In your ears right now That I'm giving you You can check out My own podcast It's called Fanti F-A-N-T-I Wherever you get Slayworthy audio We like to have Complex and complicated Conversations about The gray areas In our Lives. That's our little tagline, um, and so yeah, check us out.
0: Oh, all I want to be is sleigh worthy. <laughs> Goals. <laughs> Goals. You're already there, Krista. <laughs> oh, one rung on that ladder, babe. Well, that's our show. Join us next time when the one and only George Clooney stops by to discuss Midnight Sky, along with a few other special guests. All the films and series discussed today are streaming on Netflix. For more on Amanda Seyfried, Laverne Cox, Angelica Ross, and Krish Nashawadi, head over to netflixq.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share. Listen in next time for more like this.